I think the two most ludicrous reasons to start up a company is making money and becoming your own boss. If you are not emotionally, personally invested in the company's mission, you are most likely going to fail. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey leaders, welcome back. I'm really excited to have a co-founding team on today. That doesn't happen all the time. This is Ledge and today we are welcoming Francois Bussell and Frederic Cogni from Nova Discovery. And Francois, I'm tagging you in first to give you an introduction of yourself and the company. I hear that you're the guy to go to for the origin story. Yeah, I guess. Uh, good morning, guys. So uh, maybe starting about the company itself. So we're, we're a company specialized in clinical trial simulation. We've built uh, a platform called uh, Jinko, um, which is essentially helping biotech and pharma companies optimize the design of their clinical trials in multiple different disease areas with the ultimate objective to improve probability of success of those trials, uh, reduce ethical and financial costs, especially of failed trials, uh, as well as uh, potentially speed up time to market approval so that uh, patients get access to innovative therapies uh, faster than would otherwise be the case without uh, the platform. Uh, as to my position within the company, so I'm, I'm the co-founder, CEO, and uh, my role is essentially is to make sure that there's a good alignment between the board of directors and the executive committee team. 
so that the uh, strategy that we craft all together gets uh, properly implemented in practice. Uh, I'd say that the second biggest part of my job is to um, raise funds as most CEOs uh, and also uh, ensure that we uphold our company culture and work ethics. Fantastic. Frederic, please uh, give your uh, give your version of the truth. <laughs> Hi, Lech. Thank you. So I need to correct everything Francois just said. So. Uh, I'm Frederick, so I'm the CTO and co-founder of the company. Uh, I joined the company as an employee only in uh, 2016, and the company was founded though 11 years ago in 2010 by Francois and his father. The title of co-founder comes from the fact that I helped them raise the initial funds. I'm one of the initial investors. Um, I helped them along the journey a little bit at the beginning, but much more involved since 2016, since I uh, came back to France and join as a CTO of the company. So as a CTO, I'm more inward focused. Francois was explaining how it was outward focused and really the team is 20 people strong. We call it the scientific software engineering team. And it's quite an appropriate name because it's really a variety of experts that we put together from a typical web dev developer, but all the way to more of the uh, more scientific profile. I would say people are experts in like differential equation solving, model solving, competition accelerations, and people who have domain expertise in understanding biologists' problems and really make them and formalize them into math and computer science techniques. So this is the team that I'm heading. Um, we also have the company, another big team, actually bigger, than the scientific software team. The company now is 70 people strong. And the majority of the employees we have are actually what we call biomodelers, so scientists per se, who have an expertise at the boundary between engineering and really biology and clinical problems. So their expertise is understanding both the client's problems and understanding the biology, formalizing the needs of the clients and turning them into scientific questions and then go and do the biological models. Because when you hire web developers, they don't understand anything about biology, right? And, and so the challenge has really been to assemble an entire team of statisticians, clinicians, doctors, computer engineers, and get those people to talk to each other in a way that they understand each other and to come up with a final product, which is not only the Jinko platform, the SaaS platform, but the service that goes with the platform, i.e. the consulting we can bring along with it, as well as the content within the platform, i.e. the library of models, of disease models that we sell within the platform. So that's really the challenge we've been tackling in the last few years and that is in front of us as well for the next few years. So this is what I do. So it's a, a complicated thing that you do. And I know being in enterprise business development, B2B business development, that uh, the the number one challenging thing is to take complicated things to make them simple to both buy and sell. And when you have an enterprise customer, there's not that many companies that run clinical trials for drugs, you know, in the world. I mean, relative to the total market size. So you have a limited number of people you can talk to in a complicated space. I mean, how does that even work where, you know, I, cause I think like there's, there's a lot of scientific people and 
technical people and business people who kind of go, you know, I really want to make the medical sphere better, you know, ripe for disruption. I mean, we hear that all the time, but I mean, it's absolutely one of the most complicated regulated spaces. So you have to take incredibly difficult things and make them simple to explain. And I imagine those strategy meetings are often, uh, you know, just a lot of brain power and space. So you know, either one of you, please take take that question and just explain to people who want to found things like this, what are the core ways that you make that world accessible and, and more simple and, and actually useful for, you know, the business buyer? So I'm, I'm happy to take the first crack. It is an extremely complicated question. Um, and, and there are a number of ways uh, to try and, and provide an answer. So in terms of market adoption, what we've seen is that, you know, there's been a couple of inflection points fairly recently, actually, the, the early years of the company were sort of a constant struggle uh, for survival. Um, and really the first thing that happened was when the US regulator, the FDA received the congressional requirements to promote those simulated trials for the reasons I've mentioned before in order to improve uh, the uh, design of clinical trials. Then we started to see early adopters showing up. and. Unsurprisingly, at least now, uh, surprisingly at the time for me, those early adopters were actually smaller biotech companies rather than large pharma companies. And you have a multitude of smaller biotech companies. And the dynamics at play here with hindsight um, are basically those early adopters with a high concentrated exposure on a limited number of bets were really willing to take uh, innovative approaches to reduce de-risk basically the um, their clinical development program. So we managed to build a portfolio of use cases. We managed to start to craft tangible user stories uh, to clarify the message and progressively on that basis um, bootstrap towards uh, large pharma customers. Uh, so that, that's essentially the, the, the way uh, it, it happened in a nutshell. Yeah, Francois makes makes it sound super simple. Uh, it's been an eleven year eleven year journey. That's what CEOs do <laughs> later. You know, it was a it was it was complicated. We almost died, but it's no big deal. We're good now. You know, that's that's that's, that's exactly it. This, yeah, this when, is the optimist founder CEO. I'm going to dig in more on the almost died part. I'm telling you, you know, right now. But Fred, give us give us perspective. No, this is it. Yeah, the almost died part is what proved the resilience. But I'll let Francois tell you his nightmare stories a little bit later. <laughs> Those are what I like. Yeah. And, 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 and the company right now is exactly in that pivotal phase that you described, which is this go-to-market strategy. And how do you align it with the product evolving? So right now, it's not just a product that evolves. It's a product that's being nascent. We just launched our platform two months ago and our first clients are coming onto it. But so far we were a professional services business. We are expert in our domain, consultants, and imagine the current collaboration with the client is the following. I have this problem. I have these questions. I want to de-risk. I'm a biotech. I have two, you know, um, molecules candidates. 
I want to bring them to market. I have these questions I want answered. Can you help us? We come in, we model the disease. We model the target population this disease is aiming at. And we say, okay, the optimal design for your trial is going to be X and Y, this drug regimen, this, those are the responders to the drugs. We think you should potentially combine it with this existing treatments because there are synergies. And this is your trial strategy. But it came in the form of a big report, 250 pages at the end of it, analysis, and, you know, the thunk factor, and like, boom, this is the answer. I'm exaggerating. It wasn't so, just a so big thing. It was in, in workspaces. And he's stuff. making and we, he's making the uh, the old consultant uh, thunk of the, uh, here's your huge binder of stuff you paid for uh, that's probably going to gather dust on shelf three of uh, the strategy behind the CEO's desk. But yeah, I, I understand this. I used to be in professional services. Exactly. So you get the image. And, and now the idea is that we are onboarding our clients, delivering parts of the results for them within the platform. So it's a complete shift in business model. It's transforming professional services into recurring businesses, recurring revenues. It's about bringing both the platform with the content, with the services that go with those two. And so it's not only a better sales vector to existing client, it becomes a better entry point and a door opener to new clients that don't want from professional services, but just want the tools and already existing models to be able to play with them and go faster. And it's a chance to be able to reshape your sales offer. It's a chance to address new clients or existing clients, but tell them we're no longer going to do professional services, but you're going to get access to our know-how through the platform. And it's also a challenge internally because then you're telling a bunch of people internally that you've been scientists and doing answering research questions for a while, and now you're going to be answering them behind a platform in a way, still in very frequent contact with the clients, but in the form of managed services within a product. So it's productizing both externally towards our client and internally. And that's a big challenge in terms of how we shift both the mindset internally and approach on your clients. So it it's it's not easy. It's been a lot of brain power, uh, like you were saying. Oh, it sounds a bit pretentious when it comes from this side, but in a sense, we've been thinking about it quite a bit. And it was fun. It was fun. And we're still in the process of figuring it out as we speak. So, Sure. Yeah. There's, uh, so based on what you, you both said, there's two places I want to dive in. And let's, let's start first with this, this thing you're describing of becoming a product business with MRR or ARR from the experience of having been a professional service or service business in general. I see a lot of companies trying this. And it, and I think it's because, well, you know, it's, it's very much more attractive to be able to uh, charge the proverbial customer credit card every month and get revenue coming in and using a product and not have to provide human services, which only scale linearly uh, relative to SaaS revenue, which has um, that very attractive, you know, near zero cogs uh, that everybody wants to do. Uh, ultimately, right? I, I see you rolling your eyes on the on the capital expense side, but this is a thing that's really attractive and really hard. And I've seen far more companies fail to make the conversion 
to product from service uh, than I have, you know, been successful in that. I, I would love if you would each dive into that a little bit, because if there are lessons learned there, that's a huge, huge issue for, for companies. And, and I see it done poorly all the time. So uh, love to learn from that. And then we'll come back to bootstrapping after that, because that's my second favorite topic. Yeah. So happy to take this one uh, to start with. So the, the reason why we will succeed is basically because for one, pharma companies have started over the past years to internalize modeling capabilities. And these people tend to handle extremely sensitive data that they're not necessarily comfortable handing over to external scientists for uh, analysis and, and insights generation. So providing a platform makes sense because of this. It also makes sense because the, the, the use and the, the optimal uh, value extraction from such a platform is, is by asking multiple questions. It's a bit of a, a string of a hypothesis that you want to test. And so with the internal capabilities well-equipped with the Jinko platform, uh, you, you basically can work much more efficiently than having to go back and forth constantly with a, an external provider. Uh, I guess the, the consulting historically was for us a, a necessary evil uh, to the extent that we knew those early projects would uh, make or break the company. And so we really wanted to internalize 100% of the execution risk. But the company's mission always has been to be a driver of change of the, the research and development paradigm towards more of an engineering mindset. And to be efficient and to execute on our mission, we need to be able to reach out to as many companies as possible. So the, the product, the migration towards the product was, was much more driven by the initial mission than the financial consideration. Now, the good thing, obviously, is, as you mentioned, is that it's it's much more scalable from a financial standpoint, but it really was a matter of making sure we could um, reach out to tens of pharma companies, hundreds of biotech companies. Uh, I'll add to that a little point, which is just like you said, transitioning is hard and you, you love to know lessons learned. And one of the great things we that happened to us is we found someone who had lessons learned and who's now our COO. And he's gone through exactly that same transition in his previous businesses, going from a consulting company to a professional services and how to really, how to manage a transitory phase of going from one type of contract to another. So Grégoire, who just happened to join us three months ago, four months ago, and started working a little bit with us as a consultant before had exactly that experience. So if there is anything to learn from it is that it's good to go to someone who has some lessons learned, I would say ahead of doing the transition. And he's, he's been fantastic in helping us shifting and, and shaping the journey uh, in that transition. So, right. Right. So I love, uh, let me restate for the, the lessons part. You know, I think what stood out to me from, what you said, Francois, is, you know, being a, a really firm mission driven company was what allowed you to say, OK, our business model is changing. But the thing that we set out to do is not changing. Uh, whereas if you were to say, I'm only want, I want to change to a product company because I'm sick of consulting 
and I want to make more uh, sustainable revenue flow, like that's an opportunity to fail. And I, I think you're you're probably really correct on that. That it's just like if you're bored doing what you're doing and decide that you should make a product company, uh, that's probably not a good thing. You need to have that driving mission. I suspect that will when we get the bootstrapping, that'll come back up as to why you also were able to survive, you know, uh, eating, eating ramen noodles and, you know, staying up late. So, <laughs> and the other thing, Fred, before we leave that, that topic, I, I think this is interesting for service companies that you drew a distinction between consulting and professional services. And I'd love if you would explain that because I think that gets missed sometimes. All right. Professional services to me is we're leveraging internal capabilities and assets that we build internally to offer to our clients within a consulting agreement. Pure consulting is just brain power. The way I see professional services is you're leveraging a suite of internal tools and assets that you're building across time. And this is exactly what we've been doing. So when I joined the company, he was I would say a little bit of a mess in a way that projects were organized and you put a team of biologists together. They say, Hey, I'm going to do my model. I'm going to be building it using MATLAB. The other guys, Oh no, I prefer in Fortran. I'm going to build my model in Fortran. And then you get a statistician. Oh no, I'm only doing my analysis using R. And then you, my background is not biology. It's not coding. I was in a, in a training desk before and but one of the things you do is you check the infrastructure when you build an activity you want processes to be aligned and so so i came in with this engineering mind of okay guys it, this is not sustainable we're going to build one library one way of doing things we're going to build assets we're going to productize our process and even though we're not selling this we're already productizing the way we're doing things internally and to me, this is the difference between a professional service and consulting. We're not just selling brands, we're selling brands that sit on top of huge asset stack uh, that we leverage, simulation capabilities, distribution, results, talking, analysis, all end up in a report at the end, you know, the thumb factor I was thinking about. But to generate that report, you've got a lot of essentially technology already sitting on the back of it. So this is the difference to me. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you know, what immediately pops into my brain, the classic case study is, you know, the uh, Jeff Bezos memo. So we will run everything as a web service and you're not allowed to talk to each other across business units unless it's a web service. And, and to this day, you know, like that's, that's AWS. And it took that sort of discipline to say that, that we are going to make one thing. And it's essentially a product suite that allows us to run better which then allows you to then if it puts a coat of paint on it and you know sort of create a customer experience layer you can then turn that into a money making product and not dismiss from professional services so i think there's this idea too that often you know there's only one way or the other you know you can either just have a saas that's self serve or you can have you know sort of a consulting company and that there is that opportunity for uh, layered and leveraged brains. They said, we, we need to come in and charge you money to teach you how to do this properly. And ultimately, we will take our hands off that if you can build the internal capabilities to run it. And then you have a software platform that, that you can pay for. But uh, that path tends to actually be 
quite a bit longer, I think, than any customer ever imagines. But it's it's nice on the sales process to be able to be like, look, our intention is to not have to bill you for consulting for the rest of time. However, you need to take responsibility as a customer to listen to what we tell you and build internal you know, personnel and skill up capabilities to use the platform. If you don't do that, you are going to end up paying for professional services forever. So I, I love that. There's an interesting thing maybe we'll come back to, but so I want to get to bootstrapping, but you know, I also, I encounter a lot of companies that have this interesting challenge of saying, we want to demonstrate a better gross margin. Uh, professional services, gross margins do not approximate the same thing as SaaS gross margins. And therefore breaking that out from a financial standpoint for raising money is an issue. Uh, maybe that's a whole other episode, but I find that happen a lot. So I, I, <laughs> maybe we'll get to that. But I want to do bootstrapping stories because I think those those are really important. And it's so easy to get starry eyed, you know, sort of founder stories of going, yeah, it was an overnight success that took 11 years. And uh, what it was like at the beginning when you had to wake up and, you know, sort of roll over in the morning and say, you know, dear God, what have I done and how am I going to pay payroll in two weeks? So. Francois, it sounds like you were there for those days. I, and, you know, I, I'd like to know how you, uh, how you ended up like uh, getting through that and, you know, the stress of being the founder. Cause I, I think we, we have revisionist history in startup land and I like to dispel that. Happy to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, there are, I think, the two most ludicrous reasons to start up a company is making money and becoming your own boss. If you are not emotionally, personally invested in the company's mission, you are most likely going to fail. It took us seven years before we started really to have those uh, early manifestations of interest from smaller biotech companies, these early adopters that I've mentioned before. And that's a very long time. So the interesting thing, I guess, a couple of things and, and maybe key takeaways. First thing is you'd better be humble when you finally meet success to the extent that the inflection point usually is connected to timing, which is by its very definition an, an exogenous factor most of the time. And that was for us, the FDA receiving the congressional requirements. And, and believe me, we had nothing to do with the uh, Congress's decision to give the, that instruction to, um, to the FDA. Uh, so th there's a reason why venture investors, the, the first question they ask is, uh, is it the right timing? That's because it's, it's the number one uh, driver of success of, of a startup project. And so it took us this very long period of seven years almost going bankrupt in, in 2014. Uh, so those were extremely challenging times. And, you know, going back home, um, thinking about how you're going to pay the team at the end of the month. But we, I think, were blessed with resilient people in the team. They, they really never backed down. Very supportive seed investors, friends and family. So we relied on, on this um, early form of financing on a couple of occasions when, when times were extremely uh, challenging. Uh, but as long as you really are invested in the mission and you exhibit the, a good level of resilience, 
then you, um, you know, you eventually pass those early inflection points and, and start to have other challenges to address scale up or productization challenges, but these are, they are intellectually interesting and they don't bring the same level of stress as those, those early as we're mentioning eating ramen noodles for a full year. I've been there and, and yeah, the project was, uh, a heavy personal burden family-wise, so, but we stayed the course. You each came out of Lehman Brothers, which I'm sure is an interesting story. And, and uh, maybe uh, speaking of timing, you know, forcing factors for uh, making different life decisions. So uh, I'd love to hear what 2008 and nine was like, and was that part of the decision-making process to, to make your own company? Okay, so indeed, um, I was let go uh, a couple of months before uh, Lehman went uh, bankrupt. I was working in a, a small principal finance team, uh, so essentially making investments that were meant to stay on the bank's balance sheet. Uh, therefore, typically the, the type of business that you get rid of in turbulent times uh, in priority, compounded by the fact that we were attached to the larger structured finance group where securitization deals were being crafted. So not the best place. I mean, we were extremely <laughs> close from the, uh, the, the center of gravity of the, the maelstrom. So, um, so the entire team was, was disbanded, I think in April or May. And one year before my parents paid me a visit, uh, I was at the time working for Lehman in Tokyo. Uh, as, as Fred was, uh, incidentally. And during breakfast, my father told me about this crazy idea he had uh, when he would retire from his um, academic research career uh, within a year or so. Uh, he wanted to potentially launch a company that would build mathematical and computational models of complex diseases to improve innovation capabilities for, for the farm industry. And... That was back in July 27. I basically told him, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm fine. Uh, I like my job. Uh, and <laughs> obviously, one year later, we had this conversation again. And, and this is the, uh, the, the genesis of the project. So about that thing you said, Dad, yeah, <laughs> changed my mind. <laughs> and, and so then you started a company with your father after his academic career during total economic worldwide collapse. So uh, timing is is everything then. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. If, in any case, I mean, I, I was, I guess, not a sufficiently stellar a banker to find a job in the current context. That's, that's I guess, point number one. And point number two, uh, I got the entirety of my Seaburns package, which was the benefit of being uh, let go a couple of months before uh, the company filed for Chapter 11. So uh, I had a bit of a capital to spare and uh, work on, on the startup projects. And spend it on ramen noodles. Yeah. And no kid <laughs> and as no many wife of us have then, done, yeah. yes. Yeah, no kid and no wife back then, so an appetite for risk slightly higher than the average person. Yeah, right. And stage of life changes over the course of 11 years. Uh, not only the color of our beards and our lack of hair, you know, the... <laughs> Yeah, that's I, I love that. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that happens where, you know, life changes coalesce with, um, you know, startup ideas and you know stuff that you could never possibly have imagined. And then to have to come on board and 
because uh, you talked about like the, this vision being important to you and uh, the mission of the company being a driving force that initially you didn't even buy it. You said, no, nah, I'm going to I'm going to keep my day job, you know, and so like you must have a visceral sort of understanding of how to sell that vision that you were sold on at some point, you know, that that you became a believer and then helped to drive the strategy forward. Do you have any sense of looking back at that? I think there's a tremendous amount of respect for what my father has accomplished during his academic career. So there's there's a family component to it. I also always wanted at some stage, I think, to potentially work on something that had a strong uh, societal impact. Not, not to suggest that my early years in investment banking were just for fun, because believe me, it's not that fun in terms of workload. But I, I really viewed this as um, something that was necessary to perfect my business school training. And I never, at no point really contemplated to spend the entirety of my career in, in banking. But I, I loved the people I was working with. I loved the company. And I also loved living in, in Japan. So I was, I was in a happy place when I had the, this first conversation with my father. Fred, having bought in later, literally bought in and brought, you know, brought your skills to the table. I wonder how that was later, later stage and how you saw that story evolve and, you know, sort of wanted to come on uh, your, your, this role that you, you've talked about is sort of second stage uh, co-founder type of thing, I think is, is what happens when teams grow and you, you still need that level of buy-in that is beyond the, Hey, do you want to come, uh, have a CTO job? You know, so what's that like as the second stage, you know, tag in sort of co-founder, uh, who also put money on the table? So it was a two-stage process, really. The first stage was even before the company was founded. So uh, we met in London. We both moved to Japan, both for Lehman Brothers, coincidentally. <laughs> and when his father uh, retired, actually, his whole family and friends paid a to Jean-Pierre a trip uh, uh, in South America, uh, selling, uh, and they said, Fred, you want to tag along? So I said, okay, sure. I came along. And then his father shared a vision and it was a pretty convincing vision. Uh, even though I was a bit skeptical at the beginning, he managed to convince me. I did, it didn't make me join the company then, but it definitely made me invest in the company. So this is what helped them found it. And, and then later, uh, when I said, okay, maybe I'm looking for something else. Uh, I was lucky in uh, 2008 when Lehman went bankrupt. Uh, I, just before things went really south, I found a job in Singapore, uh, still in trading business, uh, which is where I moved for seven years before joining Nova essentially and moving to France. So what was the experience joining the company in 2016? Uh, pretty fun. A lot of interesting ideas already, a bit of a mess. And yeah, I didn't join because there was a CTO job you want to join. I joined because definitely the vision was already convincing. I didn't join for the money because they were just coming out of 
almost bankruptcy. So they're like, do you want to join? But we can't pay you. I'm like, okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is it. Yeah, it's it's really the vision and the people that made me jump. And when you stop working in a relatively intellectual area, uh, even though you tell yourself, I'm going to take a break for a while, uh, it's hard to to not be busy. And the intellectual challenge of a new film, new people, new domain is really what is exciting as well. So it made me uh, do the jump pretty easily. So great, great. I love I love the the two perspective stories and timing keeps coming up. You know, it's just like, when is it when is it the right time? And and what are the macro factors that you see? Uh, things I can't control, things I can control. At what point will this vision be something that we can operationalize and make positive cash flow out of? I can show you my notebook of uh, ideas that I had too early and had no money and that became a billion dollars. And, you know, but ultimately, like the timing and, and the execution is is really what matters. So, you know, we often will say that, you know, it's like, oh, well, well we all had that idea and somebody actually did it. There's this example given by um, uh, Bill Gross, I think, on, on a TEDx you can easily find on, on YouTube, precisely about timing. And he refers to, I think it was Airbnb, who initially failed to secure significant investor interest from um, those Sand Hill Road investors in, in the Valley. And then came 2008. And people needed the extra cash to make ends meet. But initially, investors were looking at Airbnb saying no one in his right mind will let a total stranger sleep in her bed. Yeah, but again, exogenous factor, 2008 crisis, and, and they managed to bootstrap this into uh, quite a massive company. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think what we know of these crises is that uh, you don't get to predict them. Uh, nobody's business... Uh, strategic risk plan include global pandemic at the end of uh, when we all sat together and drank cocktails and thought about our two, 2020 strategic plan and said, well, what risks are we going to face? I can guarantee you 0% of people game planned, you know, global pandemic uh, as a reliable thing. But now you look at it and you say that like, it, as we sit down to do our 2022 plans, you're damn right that every plan is going to include some kind of existential risk, you know, relative to a thing like that. And none of us could have, you know, predicted that. So the joke is, you know, everybody was wrong when they asked in 2015, you know, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> so, so I love that. We're going to run out of time, but, you know, I, I like to give the guests and each of you, you know, just a, a couple of minutes to put on your futurist hat and say like, what are you thinking about? What do you see is coming? And, uh, what would you advise everybody to be thinking about? Maybe, you know, so those future macro factors and as well for your own development and, and leadership, you know, so you could take that wherever you want. But uh, Fred, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, put on your futurist hat for a few minutes and you know, think, what are you thinking about and what do you think everybody should be thinking about? From a macro perspective, the link between taxes and government spending feels like it's been forever ruptured. Notion of taxes is more linked to social justice or any form of justice in the word of, if you listen to politicians nowadays and with interest rates remaining extremely low. All that to say that 
I do not see a short-term future where access to relatively easy money in the sense of low interest rates and funding capabilities uh, is about to disappear. Uh, and therefore the advice linked to that is the one that you should not necessarily as a company be raising money when you need it. You should be in a continuous raising mode. Always forecast if you if you if you do need uh, money obviously to raise, don't wait for the last minute. Be in a continuous growth pattern and raise because there is a lot of money out there looking for good ideas. And don't be shy about having an idea, uh, having a business to transform and things like this. So my that's a short macro perspective in terms of funding environment. I would say. Thanks, Francois. Uh, I'll be much uh, closer to home, so maybe a bit more micro and focused on on Nova and the pharma industry at large. But those are interesting times at the industry level. Um, the pharma industry is, is the most R and D intensive industry globally, uh, measured by the the percentage of sales being reinvested in um, in R and D. But it's also the industry which is late to the digitization game. Um, so what we're seeing right now is a lot of progress has been made over the past few years, digitizing back office operations, clinical trial data management uh, aspects of the workflow. And now we're getting into core R&D digitization, which is where Nova Discovery sits. So. What what I, I I suspect is that a limited number of unified platforms will eventually emerge, potentially connecting smaller technology bricks. Um, and obviously, I'm hoping that Nova will be one of these. But the ultimate goal, I guess, uh, once this digitization is completed and therefore the pharma industry becomes more efficient at deploying um, scarce resources, uh, whether you're talking about capital as a resource or experimental units, i.e. patients, especially in the post-COVID world where running clinical trials is, is now even harder than before. If we're being more efficient on, on the input side of the equation, then in theory, drug prices will eventually uh, reduce across the, uh, across the board. So what I'm hoping is to have a much more affordable pharma industry within the next 10 to 20 years, thanks to those improvements in, in the R&D paradigm. Big vision. I like that. I think everybody's going to like that, <laughs> particularly on the consumer level. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, fantastic stuff, guys. This was really instructive. Thank you yeah, so much for sharing your your journey and, and your lessons. If anybody uh, resonated with, with something uh, and, and wants to reach out to you, what's the, the best places to do that? Email or LinkedIn. Uh, you can find my email address, I think, on my LinkedIn profile. And, and happy to um, to start a conversation. I think Fred also has his uh, email and his LinkedIn profile. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, thanks, guys, for, for sharing insights today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Very insightful as well. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. 
And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.